Hello and welcome to the Mindful Men Podcast, a show inspiring men to be mindful about their lives. Each week, we'll dive into a range of topics that matter to men and hear from everyday people doing extraordinary things. So if you love the show, please give it a five-star rating and share it with your mates. Now, before we get into this week's episode, please note that some of the content may trigger you. And if this happens, please reach out to your support networks. It's really important. If you can't get enough of Mindful Men, head over to our website. It's www.mindful-men.com.au. Find the show notes and the links to our socials there. But for now, sit back, relax, and let's get mindful. G'day guys and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Men Podcast. I'm your host Simon Rinney and today we're getting mindful about the impacts of child sex abuse and in particular we're going to see how we go from trauma to how mindset can help us move from being a victim to healing and personal growth. And joining me for today's discussion we've got Sonny Von Cleveland from Cali and USA. How are you going Sonny? Very good. Thank you so much for having me Simon. I greatly appreciate you my guy. So now I'm really excited about this story. And as I mentioned in the, the intro there, we are going to be touching on some pretty heavy topics today. So if that's something that triggers you, I always recommend my guests to just skip this episode. That's more than okay. But if you do stick around and you do get triggered, please reach out to your support networks afterwards as well. It's really important. Now, Sonny, to introduce you, you're a, you're a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And then that resulted, well, led into 18 years in prison. And you've since become a, a speaker, an author, a mentor, and a mindset coach. So a lot to unpack in this episode today. There's a whole bunch. <laughs> when I saw your post come up on, on the socials and I uh, I wanted to get you on the podcast because I think your story is such a huge one and stories really do matter. And, and the reason I started the podcast was to share stories around of men and women across the world with the hope that it helps guys to become mindful of how they're showing up in life, what's going on for them, and maybe ways that they can either grow or change or pivot or whatever they need to do to be the best version of themselves. And I think your story can go a long way to helping some of our listeners. So I am thankful that you're on the show today. But before we get started, tell us a bit about what's going on in Cali at the moment. What's something that you're enjoying in the last week that's making you feel alive? Uh, well, I'm enjoying the fact that the heat is is going away. I moved out here to get to the heat and then didn't realize what an oven it actually is, June, July, and August, and a good portion of September. And so after dealing with 120-degree days, I'm thankful that the heat's going away because it's really hot. I'm looking forward to paradise again. Nine months out of the year, it's beautiful. But no, I got so much to be thankful and grateful for. I mean, my new book just dropped on September 1st, and it's selling pretty good. Books are flying off the shelf, and it makes me so happy. It's such a humble feeling that that my story can help somebody, and I'm just really humbled by that. And I've also started my nonprofit the Von Cleveland Foundation, which is uh, designed to do book drives to provide mindset coaching and self-development materials to marginalized people that can't otherwise afford it. I'm a byproduct of mindset coaching, so I know the benefits that are involved in it. And uh, I want to give it to people because I know that when I needed it the most, there's no way I could have afforded it. And so now that I am in a position where I own it, I want to give it away. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to touch on those on, on your foundation and the book as well later on in the show because I think it would be a nice way to finish off the show and, and give someone some hope or something to, to guide towards if they're looking to change on their journey and their life's path. But let's start at the start. And I guess your story starts in childhood for you. Can you talk us through you know, what happened without going into too much detail that might be painful for you, but what you're, you're willing to share about your journey and kind of how it led you to prison? Well, you know, Simon, that's the beautiful thing about our voice. I believe that our voice is our healing mechanism. The more that we talk about our trauma, the more that we talk about our pain, especially our emotional pain and trauma, the less it hurts. And that's called healing. And so there is nothing that exists in my life that's painful to talk about anymore because I've processed it. I've dealt with it. And it's such a freeing feeling when you learn to let go of all that emotional trauma and that emotional baggage, which is is basically a, a mental prison, which it keeps you locked in there if you allow it to. So we, we start right at the start. When I was five years old, my uncle, Mike, started to molest me. He used an Atari game to kind of entice me in in my young mind. And I didn't understand what was happening at the, at the time. It was just encapsulated by this video game. And as I progressed throughout the molestation, I start to realize like, this is not something right. This is not what I want. You know, we would go to my grandmother's house as a family. I come from a single mother home, me, my brother, and my mother. And we would go to grandma's house and that's where my uncle lived. He, he lived there with him as my mother's younger brother. And he molested all of us. It turned out later on. I mean, he got my brother, he got all my cousins and the disturbing part is that this was known when I was five years old, this was known. And my grandparents basically swept it under the rug. And and then my mother continued to take us there. And it didn't come out until I was seven, I believe, or 10, seven years old when I got convicted of my first felony. It came out. And looking back now, I realize that in my young mind, when I would get arrested and get into trouble, all the men that were abusing me went away because it wasn't just my my uncle. Once that took place, it was almost like there was a green light to just molest the hell out of me. And so my mother's boyfriend, a couple family friends, and this was on a weekly basis that I was just getting touched by all these dudes. And apparently because I didn't say anything. I mean, the threats from these predators are always there. You know, if you say anything, I'll have to hurt you. I'll have to hurt your mom. I'll have to hurt the family. And so you're you're scared into saying anything. And when I would get into trouble, they would go away. Obviously, the, these adults don't want to be around a kid that's on probation and getting into trouble. So I found this sanctuary in this solitude and in getting into trouble. And that was started a very bad path for me because by the time I was 15 or 16, I was 15 years old. I had nine or 10 felonies on my record. And the judge was, okay, I, I'm done with you. Obviously, I can't reach you. I'm going to bind you over to adult court. And so he did that. And the, the, the adult judge was, all right, well, I'm not even playing with you. I'm done with you. I'm going to send you right to prison and sent me to prison for two years, two to five. And that started a very bad path for me. I was from a small town, so I had never dealt with gangs or rapists or murderers or anything on that level. And I'm thrust into this world that I was just completely unprepared for. And in the first week I was there, I was raped by two men. They ran into the cell, had a knife to my neck, and it was a pretty brutal assault. And 
I snapped at that point. Something inside of me broke as a young 16-year-old child facing the next five years in this, this hell that I would found myself in. And then this traumatic incident happening to me, I snapped and I stabbed the guy in the face. And that really started a bad trajectory because all these other men saw this. The gangs saw this. They didn't see what they had done to me. They just saw me come out as this crazy white guy that ran across the hall and stabbed a dude in the face. And so the gangs came after me and were like, bro, we want to put you down. You're, you know, we see that you're about your business and we could use you in our ranks. And I got attracted to this, this sense of family that I hadn't had since I was five years old and this, this brotherhood and, and unity that existed between these men. And so I fell into that very quickly. And one of the prerequisites for joining this gang was that you had to stab somebody. And so I found this powerful sense of, of security in stabbing people, which was weird now that I look back at it. But I knew that this was creating a persona for me that would keep me safe. If you knew that I would stab you for looking at me wrong, you won't look at me and you surely won't victimize me. And then it, the problem was that I had this mask on for so long, I became the monster I was trying to protect myself from. I got so ingratiated into this, this culture. And when I was 21, they opened up the doors and were like, here, you, you're, you're free. You're $75 in three condoms. Best of luck to you. <laughs> and at that point in my life, I was such a train wreck of a human being because I'd been raised by these wolves. And I went to the world with that same mentality. And I had these, you know, this mask on and my goals were, were to be like the next Scarface in life. And, you know, that was one of my big dreams. And for 20 months, I was just a, a train wreck in the world. I got a couple of girls pregnant. I started to rob drug dealers. I started to break into homes, just big boy crime. And I was uh, caught again in 2004 and sent back to prison for 12 more years. And during that time in 2008, I discovered that my brother was having an affair with the girl that I had the oldest son with. I just, I, you know, when I had gone back, there was something profound that had happened in that moment of losing my freedom for the second time. And now I have kids, I'm going to be a father. And I felt in my mind like, okay, I need to be a, a more stand-up guy. I have to be better. Except in my mind, it wasn't a, well, let's do something good for the world. It was, you got to be a better gangster. Mm -mm. And so I started reading all these books that I thought were self-help books, but they were just manipulation manuals, like the 48 Laws of Power and The Prince by Machiavelli and The Art of War. These are books and, and works of literature that gangs use to train their foot soldiers on how to be better gangsters. And so this did nothing for me. So when, when I found out about my brother and my kid's mom, some kid had the unfortunate choice of robbing my cell. Apparently, he didn't do his homework. And he ran into my cell, stole all my stuff. I came home from working in the kitchen one day, came back to the cell. We call it home. So easy to fall right back into that, right? Like, I came home. Mm -hmm. I came back to my cell, found out that it was, it was robbed. And it took me you know, all of two minutes to find out who it was. And I unleashed on this kid in uh, uh, just a ridiculous, violent way, unleashing all that anger. And I was taken to the hole. And as I'm in the hole, I'm washing blood and pepper spray off my face. And I hear this guy, hey, white boy, come talk to me. And I, I spazzed out. I'm like, every 
cuss word you could think of under the sun. Shut up. F you. Don't talk to me. You know, you don't know who you're dealing with, man. I will kill you. Blah, blah, blah. And he wouldn't stop every day, a few times a day. Hey, white boy, come on, man. Come talk to me, bro. Come on, man. Come on. And I'd cuss him out. And uh, eventually he stopped. And, and about a week later, I got taken down to see the security classification committee, which are the people that give you your sentence. And, you know, they said, do you really mess this guy up? He's in a coma. And if he dies, you're going to do the rest of your life in prison. And so they gave me 60 months in the hole. They were like, you're going to be here for about five years. And I mean, it was crushing, right? I'm like, wow, five years in the hole. This is fun. I got to listen to this asshole calling over here all the time. <laughs> so I go back to the cell. And as soon as I get in there, five minutes later, hey, why boy, what happened, man? And so I, I just, I guess out of loneliness, whatever, I just, what, dude, what do you want to talk about? And he said, why are you so angry? And my first response, my reaction was like, what the hell kind of question is that? <laughs> because I'm in prison, my life sucks, you won't shut up. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons why I'm angry. And he says, no, man, that's why you're mad. And mad is a surface emotion. You're angry. Angry runs way deeper, it goes to your soul, and you are an angry young man. And there was something just really profound about that. And I was like, shut up, dude. <laughs> you don't know me from a hole in the ground. Shut up. And I went back, then I started to work out and pace, and I just could not shake this question. Why am I so angry? And that was such a profound moment for me because I was like, I'm lost. I'm such a lost human being. I don't even know why I'm so angry at the world. And then it just hit me like, I've been a victim my whole life. That's why I'm angry. And so I went and I shared this with him. For the first time in my life, I decided to just be vulnerable and share it. And this dude became my mentor. And he accepted that. And over the course of 19 months, he changed my life. He helped me to learn how to process emotion and learn how to be vulnerable, learn self-forgiveness and self-kindness, as well as empathy and forgiveness of others. And these things had such a profound impact on my mentality and my mindset that I just started to consume all of this wisdom and knowledge that's been passed down for years. The first book he sent over was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. And the sentence in that book that changed my life was, suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it has a meaning. And there was something so profound in that sentence. Like, my suffering has a purpose. I went through everything that I went through because now I'm able to see the end result of my life. My, I was put here on this planet to help people. I was put here. I had to endure all of that so that I could help other people learn how to overcome it because I've been dealing with abuse since I was five years old. I'm accustomed to it. It doesn't really hurt me anymore. It makes me angry because it's an unprocessed emotion, but it doesn't hurt me. And so when I learned how to process it, all of a sudden I've got this absolute freeing feeling in my life. Like I feel fantastic. And then you double it down with a purpose. I know why I was put here. I have a meaning. I have a purpose. It's the most freeing thing in the world. And then from there, it's just, it's all about living that purpose. Yeah. Wow. And that's what I've chosen to do. I, from that moment forward, I, I decided to live a life of purpose. Wow, what a story. So many things were coming up for me there and, and you touched on freedom there. So I'm going to go straight into freedom. And you earlier you mentioned like 
when we're struggling with unprocessed emotions, trauma, mental illness, whatever it is, it can feel like a prison of the mind. Can you talk us through, you've had both the prison of the mind but also real-life prison, the physical element of it as well. What does freedom mean to you and, like, how do you conceptualise that? You know, Viktor Frankl said that when we can no longer control our environment, we have to control our attitude. And I learned that while I was in a physical prison, the biggest hindrance to success and happiness was the mental prison that I had put myself in. And I came to find that it really doesn't matter where you are. Your environment does not dictate your mindset. Your mindset dictates your environment. And when I came to this clarification in my life, I didn't even care that I was in the hole anymore. I was so free on the inside. It was such a freeing feeling that I barely even registered that I literally live in a nine by 10 cell 24 hours a day. I never see the sun. I never breathe fresh air. You had the opportunity to go outside for an hour a day if you wanted, but they always did it at five in the morning and it's cold and I don't want to get up at five in the morning and be out there. So you just never <laughs> went. So I'm literally in my cell 24 hours a day. I get three showers a week to clean myself and that's it. And I found that I was happier than I'd ever been in my life sitting in this cell. And it was such a profound moment for me. I'm like, if I can be this happy in this purgatory, imagine how much happier I could be in general population. And then imagine how much happier I could be if I was free. And so I no longer had this, this overwhelming sense of mental imprisonment because I had learned to forgive first myself and then everybody that had ever done me anything wrong. And it comes with the the realization that this lifetime of ours, this, this one spin we get around this globe is ours. It's nobody else's. It doesn't belong. Nobody else has to endure the mental trauma that I have. It, nobody else has to feel it. Sure, there's people that can emphasize with it, maybe commiserate with where I'm coming from, but you don't feel it. You, you don't see the things that I've seen. You don't have to, to sleep with the demons that I have to sleep with. And when I learned to let all of those go and I came to terms with the fact that this is my life, it was so freeing and it didn't matter where I was at. And I was able to take that mindset to general population. And I was able to teach people that I would normally never even talk to and was able to, to just be compassionate. You know, one of the things that got me out of the hole was they brought this new program into the Department of Corrections called Thinking for a Change. They wanted inmates to teach the program. And they came to me and they said, we've seen the work that you've been doing. If you study this source material and agree to teach a class, we'll let you out of the hole early. And of, of course, I'm going to jump on that. I mean, I've been stuck in this little box. Uh, and they tricked me. They put me in protective custody to teach this class. And the class had 20 men in it. And out of three of them, the rest were pedophiles. Hmm. And so I thought this was like a really sick joke from the world. But then... I thought about my guru and what would he say if he knew about this? And I felt like this is my moment. This is the earth. This is the universe. This is God, Allah, Buddha, Odin, whatever you call him. This is the universe testing me. I believe in my heart and in my mind that I have changed, that I have turned a new leaf. And this is going to be my physical test here on this physical plane, whether or not I can do this. Because at that point... I detested pedophiles. I mean, I've done horrid things to pedophiles. 
being a victim of pedophilia myself, I mean, it was almost justified. And so I'm standing on this crucial moment in my life. Do I tell them all to jump off a bridge and go back and, and sit in, in the hole and just do out my time? Or do I say, I'm going to take this opportunity to teach you men how to think differently, how to understand the consequences of your actions. I am a byproduct of what you do, right? I am a victim of molestation and what you do to little boys and little girls causes this. And so I decided to teach the class and I took them on a journey through my life of going from a victim to a predator and the damage that I have caused people including pedophiles, right? Like I, I had to put an, an emphasis on my hatred for pedophiles and the things that I have done to them. So you can see the kind of hatred that a victim of molestation holds in their heart, right? It literally trumps everything in your life. You can be as smart as you want to be. You can be as mentally well put together as you want to be. And as soon as a pedophile comes in front of you, all that shit goes out the window. <laughs> I'm immediately just filled with rage and hate. And all I want to do is cause you pain. Mm. And so I, I instructed these men and I showed them this is the consequence of your actions. And I don't know whether or not it really sank through to any of them. They graduated the class and I never saw any of them again. I didn't pay attention to whether or not they were breathing, but it did something profound for me in my life. I knew that I was a different man inside and out. And like I was free and it was right around the time when I tattooed freedom on my wrist. I was free. And so I've spent the rest of my life since then trying to do my best to heal the world. Yeah. You touched on like your hatred for pedophiles. I'm interested, like growing up in a single mother household and then having these men do these things to you, then ending up in the prison system, finding gang life. And you said brotherhood, you use that word brotherhood in that notion. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on did your perception or thoughts or something around how did you see men in your life through those different periods was it something like that you became afraid of or did you question this concept around masculinity what does that all mean for you sure i i definitely developed a distrust for older men and you know if, I, if i'm being honest and i analyze it now it was never a thing of my peers i didn't see my peers as a threat but older men you either had one of two things. You were either trying to get something financially from me or you were a homosexual trying to weasel your way in on me. And that was the way that I perceived all older men. And it was such a skewed way of thinking, right? Because I mean, I may have missed out on so many opportunities to know good men that I missed out on. And I mean, I think it even probably... It probably played some kind of role in my my now relationship with my father. I met my father, or I seen my father again. I haven't seen him, but I got back in touch with my father about six months ago. I've seen him three times in my life. And the last time I talked to him, I was 15 when I went to jail. And I called him and said, Dad, I'm going to prison. And he said, good luck. Don't borrow anything. And that was the last time I talked to him until my wife found him online six months ago. And then I called him up. I'm like, hey, I think you're my dad. And he said, well, I think I am. I said, all right. Well, there's that. And that was it. I mean, we, we've talked a couple of times since then, but I don't, I don't hold any resentment. Although I do have this inherent distrust. And I think that that probably stemmed from the lack of him being there in my life because I'm a father. And if my kid was to call me and say, something's wrong, I don't care what's in the way. I'm going and I'm going to be there. 
And I, I guess I have to thank my father for that because his absence kind of showed me what not to be. Yeah. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. But on the overall, I think I definitely had a, I mean, it was weird. I, I didn't hold that against other men my own age, uh, but older men, I definitely had a distrust for. But it also makes me hyper aware of being around children. Mm. Right. And that was always a, a weird thing for me as well. Like I'm terrified of being around kids without other people because everybody says, well, that's what how pedophiles are made. If someone's a victim of molestation, well, he's going to turn around and do it. And knowing in my heart of hearts, I, I mean, I am attracted to women. I don't you know what I mean. So that's not even a thing in my life. But just knowing that that possibility exists because there are some really treacherous people out there and I mean, I got a buddy that's dealing with it right now that his ex is accusing him of that stuff, and it's just horrible. Yeah. How has that impacted your your role as a father and your your identity as a father as well? Like, have you had periods of time away from your kids? Is, is, is it a son? Is it, do you have more than one? Yeah, so I have three sons. The relationship with my oldest son is is pretty strained. Again, my brother decided to have an affair with his mother while I was incarcerated, and they now have a, a child and a family and they're married and they've still, they've been married this whole time. And my brother raised my son as his own. So my son calls him dad, which is uh, just naturally going to be traumatic for any kid to go through. And so trying to introduce myself as a father figure in his life was a little difficult. And then when it comes to my middle son, he's in boot camp right now in Pendleton going into the Marines. And we've had a pretty good relationship up until the point where. I'm not going to just give you things because you want them and you don't get to fall back on the fact that I wasn't there for the first 12 years of your life. And so I guess I see being a father as a little bit differently. I don't conform to societal expectations and societal norms, right? Like, well, you you know every teacher that your father or your kid has in school and you're supposed to be at everything. And like, it's situational, right? Like his mother does that primarily in his life. And and for me, I felt more of a, a need to come in there and let him know that I have your back in life, that I will always be here for you. If you ever need me, I have your back. And in, in that sense, that's the extent of my role in your life now. I'm not your disciplinarian. That's your mother's role because I don't want to cause strife in the, in the household. And I also have a five-year-old son. And his mother, I don't get to see him. It's a, a case of parental alienation. Unfortunately, I left his mother. And, and I mean, I was an adult. I left her respectfully and civilly, and it just didn't go that way on her end. And so let her tell it. I'm the biggest piece of trash on the planet, and I don't deserve to be in my, my kid's life. But, you know, she's a full-blown narcissist. And you know what? The lessons that I've learned from being incarcerated in the fashion that I was... I've learned to just, I hyper process everything. And so when I have a painful emotion, it comes in, I feel it. I absolutely feel it with everything in my core. And then I let it go. And it no longer bothers me. My wife calls me the accidental Buddhist, right? Because I'm so in the moment that the world could fall apart. And then 15 minutes later, I'm like, so what do we do next? <laughs> right? I'm totally good. I process the pain. I feel it. I let it go. And then I move on. And to me, it's the ultimate source of freedom, right? Like I'm not hindered by guilt, by shame, by embarrassment, by anything. Like I, I'm free. And I think it's the most important way to live your life is to be free because this is my life and this is your life and you get to live it. Nobody gets to tell you how to do that. Yeah. I think 
you've touched on something there, letting something go, like feeling an emotion and then processing it and letting it go. And it's the letting it go part that so many of us really struggle with, myself included. Is there a certain tool that you use to let it go? What's that process look like internally for you? Yeah. So there's a couple of processes that I underwent to break myself down. The main thing that I, I think I've come to learn from it is that you don't need anything but yourself. You need belief in yourself and you need to know that I'm no longer hurting. Like it only exists if I give it space to exist, right? And if you think about it, anybody that's ever done you wrong, do you think that the, whatever the pain that you're holding right now, and you're like, I can't believe when I was 14 years old, this person did this to me. Do you think that person sitting over there thinking about, yeah, all these years later, you think he's like, I got down on that guy that one time and I did that. He's not thinking about that. And so you are the only thing keeping you in that victimhood. You're the only thing keeping you there. And it's as simple as saying, I choose to no longer stay in this mindset. Anytime that that thought comes up, you make it a habit of dismissing the thought. You don't get to exist here, right? When the thought comes up, I'm worthless. I'm not worthless. I have a lot of worth. I provide a lot of help for the world. And that allows me to trump that feeling of worthlessness. I'm ashamed of something of, of past behavior when that comes up. That's the past, right? None of us had a guidebook on how to live life. I made a mistake. I did something that was that I'm ashamed of. It was a long time ago and I can't shake it back and I can't change it. If that's going to define how you look at me, there's 7.9 billion other people on the planet. I don't need you. I don't need your approval. You can keep it moving. And that allows me to be so free and to let things go, right? It's difficult to, to put into to words how to do it. It's a habit of every day looking at yourself in a mirror and reaffirming to yourself, I am strong, I am smart, I am capable, I am worthy. I deserve the best that life has to give. I forgive myself for the mistakes that I have made. I forgive others for the mistakes that they have given me. And it's routine. You make it a habit every day. It's subconscious that this happens and it no longer holds weight over you. And when that feeling does come up, you accept it. I recognize it and I know that it's an illogical thought and I'm going to let it pass. And then I'm going to sit there and reaffirm why that's a wrong feeling. It's a very mindfulness approach that you've got there. I love it. It, it is around habits. It's around doing the work every day when you're feeling good, but also when you're feeling rubbish to reaffirm the positive aspects, your strengths and your resilience as well. On that, like how do you stay grounded when things are starting to unravel and you're feeling like maybe anger's coming up or, or hatred or madness, all these you know weird emotions or, or negative emotions, might, might I say, like how do you become grounded and, and come centered and feel better again? I think about where I was. And this is one of the most therapeutic and profound things that I found out of writing this book was that I had suppressed a lot of these things that I like, I, I put a lot of them out of my mind because that's what I do. I, I don't think about anything from the past. I give it no space in my mind. And so it doesn't exist. It only exists if I acknowledge that it's existing. And so I don't. And then writing through this book, I had to, so my wife and I wrote this together and she would interview me every morning and she would take notes and, and like, she's such a good interviewer. <laughs> she's, literally digging deep and peeling away at those skins. What was that feeling? How did you feel? Where did that, and I'm like, ah, ah, you know, and I'm going through all these PTSD invoking emotions. And I'm like, man, I had forgotten about this particular incident at this particular prison or when this happened. And I found that if I just take a deep breath, 
when I'm starting to feel, you know, the numbness in my hands or I'm feeling the woozy vibrations in my ears of, of, of a panic attack coming, like I know that these emotions are trying to trump me and they're trying to get the best of me. I can just close my eyes and just count down from 10 to 1. So I'm, I'm, I believe in, in the faith of Asatru. I'm, I'm Danish and I, I follow the, the faith of the Vikings. And we have runes, and I, I just start counting runes. And I, I recite runes in my head, especially like Othala. Othala is the rune of Odin. I mean, I have that tattooed right here on my neck. Othala is a very important rune to me. And so I just, I hold my head up, Othala, Othala, Othala. I breathe it out, Othala. And that takes my mind off of anything that I'm thinking. And then I open my mind, my eyes again, and look around and realize I'm not sitting in a 9 by 10 cell. I don't need permission to stand up. I can walk outside if I want to. I can go to the bathroom if I choose to. I can open my fridge and eat something if I choose to. And that reminds me that I'm no longer in those spaces. And that the feeling that I'm having, the thoughts that I'm having is a choice that I'm allowing to come into my life. I'm allowing it to be there. I'm giving it space. And just as I'm allowing it to give it space, I can choose to not give it space. I can choose to say, you're not welcome here and move that thought out of my mind. And it's literally, when you make this a habit, it's it's hyperactive. And so it literally becomes traumatic, 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 that's gone. It's like, oh, okay, that's good. And my wife again is like, I just don't know how you do that. Something crazy happens and it's like, oh my God, the world's falling apart, yeah, we're good. And I'm back on peace again and it takes her two hours. I'm like, no, no, let it go. Why? What? I forgot that it even happened, <laughs> right? Mm, wow. These journeys that we go on, they're all unique to ourselves and, and everyone's got their own journey. And a lot of that journey is we have to process a lot by ourselves and we do a lot by ourselves. But I'm, I'm interested in in the people. You talked about your, your mentor in, in prison, but also your wife now. And I'm interested in to some of those key people that have helped you along your journey and I guess keep you on track. Like, do you want to share a bit about your wife and how she does that for you on a day-to-day? Sure. So my wife is the most incredible human being I've ever laid eyes on. She's this petite little 120-pound, five foot seven blonde British girl from, from London. She's this soft little bunny, right? Like you can't even imagine her getting angry. And yet she is the strongest most capable person I've ever met in my life. And her story is so huge and her past is so huge. We live a life of authenticity. Our relationship was founded on authenticity. I met her on a podcast. I was a guest on her podcast and after an hour of the most vulnerable, authentic conversation I've ever had in my life, I was in love with her. And she reminds me constantly, if I do, just because you arm yourself with this wisdom and you learn these things, doesn't mean you're infallible. It doesn't mean that you're not capable of slipping back into that old subjective behavior. And whenever she sees me in that, or if I'm in that type of mindset, or if I even start to get close, she reminds me, she constantly, Sonny Von Cleveland, how long are you going to be on the apology tour? Right? You're apologizing for a life that you are a victim of, and it's not fair to you, and it's not fair to me, and it's not fair to the world. And it snaps me out of it. So I definitely believe that having an accountability partner is very important in your life. But I also, I keep in my mind the people that influenced me the most. One of the the practices that I, I underwent when reshaping myself, I broke myself down to my absolute 
bottom. I was at rock bottom. I mean, I didn't eat. I didn't sleep. I would have nightmares when I recounted all of the pain and the trauma that I've caused using my victimhood as an excuse, right? Like, well, I was molested when I was five years old. I didn't do anything to deserve that. So that's why I lashed out and broke into this guy's house and stole his family heirlooms. Like, that's not a justifiable reason to do that ever, right? And so I had to come to terms with the fact that I had caused pain and harm to innocent human beings and that it put me in such a state of shame and low self-worth and self-hatred that I, I had to go through that depression and that that self-loathing to be at that rock bottom to start to build myself up and say, okay, I have forgiven myself for those things and I've put it out to the world that those people are going to forgive me as well. And I live my life now by a compass of kindness and compassion and giving back to the world. And that's how I make up for this. So my apology tour doesn't have to continue. I can't change the things that I've done. All I can do is live my life as a shining example of what kindness and compassion and authenticity offer to the world. And, and keeping that in my mind, I'm able to, to navigate my life forward without guilt, without shame, because I know that what I'm doing is of value to the earth. And so I, I, I picked several men also when rebuilding myself that, how do I want to live my life? And so Denzel Washington and The Rock were two people that I, for a lack of a better term, idolized. And I looked at that, why? Why do I idolize these men? The Rock, because of his charm, his charisma, his confidence, the big smiles, the, you know, he's just a dashingly bold guy. And I'm like, <laughs> I like that personality trait. There's no reason why I can't do that as well. I can be that. And it's not being fake. It's choosing my personality. We all get to choose what type of person we are. And I think that, that people get lost in that. And when it comes to Denzel Washington, he's such an articulate and well put together man who overcame failure after failure after failure after failure to achieve the life of his dreams. He's like Michael Jordan. He failed his way to success. And I idolized these two men. So I said, okay, I'm going to take the parts of their personality that I love and I'm going to apply that to myself. And so many people in the world and society will try to say, that, well, that's fake. You're, you're not really being you. And to that, I would say that you're living an inauthentic life because you are afraid to be who you want to be. I want to be like The Rock. I want to be like Denzel Washington because those are admirable characteristics they have. And who says I can't be like that? Who says that? Nobody says that. And there's not a rule book. I can do anything I want. This is my life. I get to choose how I live it. And I do. And, and that's become my personality. I love it. So you've got all this this history and, and I love this story and and thank you so much for sharing so openly about your story and and as I said at the start stories do really inspire those listening around the world to maybe take some change. Tell us about the book. You mentioned the book and how that can continue this conversation forward. Like talk us through the process of writing that and what's some a key takeaway that readers can maybe expect from the book. So my wife and I, again, we wrote it over the course of a few months and it really just came out of nowhere, right? Like, so my wife and I, we do a lot. We own a cat cafe and we open it up to the community and we do a lot for our community because we both believe in giving back. We're very compassionate people. And it just out of nowhere, she was like, we just need to write your book. And I was like, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And it literally dominated our life for the next three months going forward. Like 
she was like, oh my God, I wrote 1200 words. And I was like, let me read it. And I read it. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, let's change this and this and this, but you should write another 1200 words. And then every day I even sent her off to Santa Barbara for like five days in this nice zenful, peaceful place to, to write. And it just, I don't know, out of nowhere, dominated our life for three months. And I mean, it came together so fast. We don't know what we're doing. We've never published a book. We've never put it out. I know that I didn't want to give my story off to someone else who just wants to make money off of it because I'm not driven by money. I'm driven by legacy and, and helping the world. And so we decided to make our own publishing company and we're going to self-publish the book. And then you start to learn all the little pitfalls that come with that. Like, well, if you don't have a publisher, nobody's really going to market you. It's like, oh, well, how do I market it? Oh, well, you can pay an arm and a leg for people to market the book, or you can reach out to podcasters and be on podcasters and talk about it. And I'm just, I don't care if I get rich off it. I don't care if I get fame off of it. If one person reads that book and hits me back and says, dude, that was the answer. That's it. Then it's successful for me, right? I'm going to continue to go about my life, living my life the way I am. And if that book helps you. And the one thing that I've come to notice, I've absorbed so many motivational speakers, right? Like I'm a firm believer of the mind is just like the body. If you take shit in, you're going to get shit out, right? So if you eat McDonald's, you're going to have a fat out of shape frame. And if you mentally ingest negative subjective bull stuff on your social media, that's the life you're going to live. You're going to engage in that behavior and that's the mindset you're going to have. So I divulge on Eric Thomas and Ryan Holiday and, and these wonderful speakers, Tony Robbins, Gary Vaynerchuk, Mel Robbins. I And I just, I soak their stuff in. It helps me to stay on track. But one thing that I've noticed is that they all have keys or systems, or stairs, or doors, or locks, and here's the five magical stars, and the seven magical formulas, and the three magic knock on wood three times, and wiggle your hips, and and everybody's got some kind of magical system to fix everything. I don't take that approach because I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to tell you the story of my life, what happened to me, and how I dealt with it. And if you got something that you can take from that, that can help you. If you've been through a similar situation and something that I've done can help you, my experience helps you navigate through that better. That's my goal. That's all I have, right? I'm not trying to tell you how to do this because I don't know how you do it. It's your life. I'm not in your mind. I can't tell you that the five second rule is going to work for you because it sure as hell doesn't work for me. I tried the five second rule. It didn't do anything <laughs> for me. I was like, well, I can count down to five 15 times. Still not moving. And so I don't have a formula. So the book is literally just, it's a story for you to read. And if there's something you can take away from it, awesome. I've given you everything that I have experienced and the way that I went through it in hopes that it helps somebody. Absolutely. And we'll get the link from you for where people can buy the book. I'm going to buy one straight after this episode, actually. And I'd love for you to sign it. If I'm going to put you on the spot. I'd love for you to sign it if possible. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. I can ship you one over. Love it. I love it. But tell us about the, the foundation as well, because that's a relatively new thing, is it? And, and what you touched on it at the start, but can you go into a bit more detail on how people can find the foundation as well? Sure. So my wife was the sales director for a Fortune 100 company in London. And she suffered from panic attacks. So she has one of the largest contracts on record with Apple 
and she it's a like a 1.5 billion dollar contract that she designed and executed and got them to sign with the fortune 100 company she's the reason why they're all together and that was such a she's a type a personality so everything has to be red pen and ruler going everything dot by dot and it it sent her being a woman in this male dominated society is she started to have panic attacks and she dealt with those panic attacks for 18 months until she got up one day and said you know what the wealth is not worth my health and she quit and she founded Itopia Coaching. She started this mindset coaching company and became a keynote speaker and traveled the world giving speeches on corporate burnout, women empowerment, mental health. And when her and I got together, I saw the curriculum that she had, the boot camp, your life program. And I looked at it and I said, this is fantastic. My only criticism is that it's geared toward corporate people, right? Like if you were to put this in the hands of a drug dealer or a gangbanger, They'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. It wouldn't even register to them, right? Because it's very corporate. And I said, let's put the lessons that I've learned in my life and let's amalgamate the two and make it available for everybody. Make it reach everybody from every facet of life, whether you're a corporate CEO or you're a, a homeless drug addict on the streets. This curriculum can help you. And we base it on the effects of choice. And so it's called the choice effect. And we put this together and then I'm looking at it like, I want to give it away. It's expensive. It's $199 for the program. I'm like, geez, babe, nobody can afford that <laughs> except for wealthy people. They can afford it because then it also has the, the accompanying mindset coaching, which is $2,400 for the 12 weeks. And I'm like, in total, you're looking at like 2,700 bucks. The homeless drug addicts can't afford this. People locked up in jail can't afford this. How do we give it away? And I had no idea how I was going to give it away because it cost me $80 to print one of these books. And I'm like, well, I don't know what to do. And then through networking, through other businesses, I started to learn about nonprofit organizations. And I thought, okay, I could start a nonprofit to raise money to not only buy this program and disseminate it to people for free, but also to acquire some of these amazing books that have changed my life. I have an extensive library of all of the books that have really had an impact in my life. And, and how do I give these away? I obviously, I'm not rich, so I can't afford to just go buy them and give them to people. Nonprofit. So I sat down with some strong supporters of mine and they were like, I think it's a fabulous idea. So I, I have put this nonprofit together to raise funds to purchase these mindset coaching materials and personal development materials and disseminate them for free to homeless shelters and drug rehab centers and, and you know foster homes and juvenile facilities and jails and prisons and, and just give this material to these men. And if only 1% of them use it, that's 1% of those people that have an opportunity to turn their life around and make a difference in their life by making a choice. And then that stemmed into what else can I do with that? I would create an empowerment center. And so now the plan is in place to build the Itopia Empowerment Center, which is a building that has a mindset library, a Zen room for you to study in, as well as a podcasting room for you to share your experiences where everybody is just open to the public. As long as you maintain the self-work and you're actually putting in the work, this place is free for you to use. Come in here, 
read the books, meditate, study, mindfulness courses, come over here, sit out on a podcast and talk about your experiences and work through your trauma and work through your pain. And we'll work through that stuff together because I promise you, whatever you've been through, some of us have been through it already. And we might be armed with tools to help you get through it. And so I think that our voice is the one thing that separates us from everything else on the earth. And this is our healing mechanism. I can tell you about how I was raped in prison and it doesn't bother me a bit. But when it first happened, I didn't tell nobody for years. <laughs> like I held that in for years because of the, the pain that would come up with it. And when you speak about your trauma, it gets easier and easier. It's like lifting weights in a gym, right? It sucks at first, but the more you do it, the better you get at it. The less it hurts and the heavier you can lift. Same thing with your voice. The more you say it, the more traumatic stuff you can talk about, the easier it is to talk about, and it doesn't hurt anymore. And that's called healing. And so I want to create this center that people are, feel free from, from judgment and they're, they're able to be vulnerable and are able to share themselves. And on the same time, grab up some books that possess this age-old wisdom that can help you to learn how to navigate life differently and live the life of your dreams. And so that's what the Von Cleveland Foundation is all about. And we're this close to getting there. We got our state approval and we're waiting for our IRS designation, but we don't need it to start moving. So we're going to start moving now and uh, trying to change the world. That's so cool. Like it's about healing, but also growing as well. You talked about the more we talk about it, the easier it gets. And then we start the healing process. But then earlier we talked about those positive affirmations and telling ourselves that we're strong and resilient and so forth. That's the growing process as well, going from survival to thriving as well, which I, I love that and that passion that comes out from sharing your story. And that's exactly why I share my story as well for that exact same reason. And I love how you're providing it to the people that really do need it, that can't afford the, these materials because then that breaks perhaps intergenerational generational trauma. It breaks cycles that come down from grandfather to father to, to son and, and so forth. And maybe we might start to see some of those prison numbers change. How do we expect people to get better if they don't have the opportunity to get the materials that will help them get better? Absolutely. In the United States in particular, the prison system has become an absolute money machine. It's modern day slavery, and it's literally about lining pockets. It's a business. And I might add, it's a business that fails 77% of the time. We have a 77% recidivism rate. I don't know any business that could fail 77% of the time and still have governmental support. It's ridiculous, but it's all about lining people's pockets. And you need bodies inside those prisons in order to get that money. And so they don't care about human beings. They don't care about people. They care about filling those beds. And it's incumbent upon us to educate these men because the programming is there. The availability for materials is there. The department is not going to push you to utilize them. When you look at prison systems in like Finland or Romania or some of these other European countries, it's almost like a college campus because that's what you need. I don't want an ex-convict returning to the world. I want a graduate student returning to the world. I want somebody who went in or got an education and learned about life. And the recidivism rate in these other countries is so low. How do we not look at that and take an example of it? The United States makes up 5% of the global population. We make up 25% of the prison population in the entire world. We have 3 million inmates. Out of the 8 million inmates that are in the world, we have 3 million of them. It's disgusting. And we only make up 5% of the population. Why? <laughs> And nobody sees a problem with this. Nobody's going to step up and be like, hey, we shouldn't be doing that. 
And it's it's nice to see that there are organizations that are like the Anti-Recidivism Coalition in California. You know, these are all ex-convicts that are working diligently to try to get some reform going on, to try to turn these prisons into educational institutions where, where these men learn while they're there and learn how to get out and be better human beings. That's where the focus needs to be. They're not there to be punished the whole time. The being there is the punishment. Yeah. Let's educate them while they're there and return them back to society, better people. I love that passion comes out. I love you hearing your story and your passion and, and the vulnerability and authenticity that comes, Sonny. It is an amazing story and one that comes from pain, but it's now into purpose as well. So, Sonny, if, if anyone's listening to this and they want to get in touch with you, they maybe want to work with you or see what you're about, where can I best find you? The easiest thing I've come to find is to Google me. i've come to learn that that's the easiest way to find if you just put sonny von cleveland in google i'm apparently the only one on the planet which is it's kind of good because it's pretty easy to find me but you can also go to itopiacoaching.com to find out about my coaching company you can go to heywhiteboy.com for the book and you can also go to the von cleveland foundation.com if you want to learn more about the foundation and how you can support it Otherwise, I mean, I'm on every other social media platform as Sonny Von Cleveland, and I'm here to help, right? Like I, I respond to messages. I see them. I don't ignore people. Like I'm going to ignore this guy, whoever this is, because Clearwater, Florida is not important right now. And so you're going to have to wait, Clearwater. I, I just believe I, we, the heart has an infinite capacity to love. And it's been such an incredible journey, especially since coming out to California. You know, I'm a, an ambassador for a nonprofit called Buddha Bullying, and I've had the privilege of speaking to middle schools in Africa and in middle schools in Los Angeles. And you see the treachery that some of these kids live with, and they still smile, right? Like you still see the hope in their eyes that even though they live in a life of trauma and tragedy, that that the dream of a better life still exists. And, and that just compels me as adults, as men, especially men, because I feel like men are under attack these days, like with the rise of the new feminist movement. My wife is a feminist and she's a true feminist. And feminism is the equality of women. It's equality. And I fully support that. But you have feminism now is turning into man bashing where it's wrong for a man to even be proud to be a man. And I think that that demasculation is destroying it. The suicide rates amongst men are just off the charts, right? And fellas need to know that you are worthy and that you have value and that you are needed on this planet. And regardless of what anybody else thinks of you, you have value, you have a purpose you're worth the best life possible. And it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to be emotional. It's okay. It takes more balls and courage to cry in front of the world than it does to be a tough ass that nobody believes you're a tough ass anyway. You know, it's nonsensical, right? We're talking about mindful men here. Let's be mindful of the fact that when you puff your chest up and refuse to be vulnerable, nobody believes it. Everybody's like, oh, yep, that's just a machismo guy over there. He's just too tough right? Nobody's buying it. And when you actually do share your emotion and you're vulnerable, you've never seen anybody go, uh uh-huh, and make fun of you, right? Nobody's ever made fun of a guy that was actually vulnerable, right? That's our superpower lies in our ability to be vulnerable. So be mindful of being open with your emotions and share it, right? Because it's strong. And the best part about it is that you will inspire another man 
to do the same thing. And I've heard time and again, I never expected somebody that looks like you to talk about the things that you talk about. And that's the point, right? I have to, I am compelled to, because it's a, it's a teaching. Somebody once took the chance to teach me and he didn't even know me from a hill of beans and was vulnerable with me and shared with me and helped me grow. I owe that to the world, right? And men need to know that. You want to make mindful men? There you go, <laughs> right? I couldn't have said it any better, you know, myself. That was a really powerful way to, to almost wrap up the show. One more question before I let you go. Thank you for sharing that. Like that's exactly what I'm talking about with the guys that I work with in, in the one-to-one stuff that I do, but also in the communities that I'm involved with as well. It's around mindfulness isn't just about meditation, which is often is believed about and it's part of it, but it's about who we are, how we're showing up in the world, what does masculinity mean, what does manhood mean, what does a father mean in 2023 and beyond. There's been different versions over the the generations that have influenced the way that we've behaved. And like you said before, like for a long time, you didn't talk about stuff because the pain that was going to come up from that. And for me, that was 20 years. But eventually, we'd start talking, we get vulnerable and and nobody's laughing. it's, It's actually the hug that we needed desperately. Hugs heal the world, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if it doesn't last three seconds, it doesn't count. <laughs> Next time you hug somebody, you got to stay in there for three seconds, fellas. You got to hang in. You got you to stay in there and, and let the hearts touch. And, you know, I just learned not too long ago from a complete stranger in my cat cafe that when you hug, lean left or lean to your right. Lean your head to your right and lean in with your left shoulder. And it's heart to heart connection in that hug. And I never thought about that before. And then I looked at it and I'm like, yeah, I always go to the right or to the left. I always, and now I can't help it. I'm always going this way and let's hug heart to heart, man. And I, dude, I think hugs are so healing, bro. Yeah, absolutely. Last question. I always ask this of every guest and it's around plugging something that makes you feel good. So we have talked about some pretty heavy stuff and, but also some really empowering stuff as well. And so I ask every guest to leave something behind, something that's making them feel good, whether it's a TV show, it's a radio that you're listening to, a music, book you're reading, a self-care activity that's a pay it forward so a bloke on the other side of the world can go, hey, I might try that for myself and maybe feel good today too. (laughs) I mean, jokingly, my one vice in the world is I like to shoot 12-year-olds in the face and cuss them out on Call of Duty. (laughs) It's the one vice that I have. (laughs) <laughs> I, I go in completely anonymous under a fake name and I just let them little have it. Like, ah, and I rage out. Uh, but that's not healthy. I don't recommend doing that, but damn it, it feels good. Um, <laughs> I think we've all done that. We've all done that. Don't worry. It's so nice. It's so nice. It's therapeutic. I have what I call a an eat and greet, actually. Uh, we've all heard of meet and greets. And I've done a lot of, of touring when I was back with my band and I've come to find out because I'm also a photographer. And so I have a lot of band friends and I do, you know, I shoot photography for a lot of events. And so whenever I'm in a new town or a new space, or even if it's a, a space that I've been before, I see a homeless person and I go up and I introduce myself and I take them out and I buy them dinner. And I just want to hear your story. Just tell me your story. I'm not recording. I'm not doing anything. I just want to hear how you got to this place in your life. I want to buy you a hot meal. And just that's all I ask in return is to tell me, you know, it's it's an eat and greet. And I don't tell anybody. I think you're like the third person I've ever told. I don't really share it. But it has such a profound impact on me. I have heard just some some horrible stories, like really successful men that 
you know, they had an infidelitous wife that they lost their minds and just went nuts and lost everything in a divorce and lost their kids and just gave up on themselves. And I've had, you know, a pharmaceutical dude that was, he was so wealthy and his wife and kid were hit by a drunk driver and he lost everything that meant anything to him. And he drank himself into a stupor and lost all of his money. And then he's this homeless guy begging for food and I, and I mean, I've obviously, I've heard the drug addict stories too, where it's like, well, I come from a good home. I got a great mom. I got a great dad. I got a great family support system. I just love drugs. And I don't judge. I just, I just want to hear your story because it, it, it humbles me, right? It, it makes me grateful. I have a healthy body. I have two wonderful working legs and two wonderful working arms. And I have a cognizant mind that is capable of allowing me to navigate through life the way I want to. And I'm just thankful and grateful for the life that I do have. And I, I highly recommend that, right? And you don't even have to go buy them a meal. Go buy them a cup of coffee. Just take some random person out and just hear their story. And it just kind of puts things into perspective that, you know, life is not so bad, even with whatever we're dealing with, whatever trauma we've been through. The world still suffers. And if you're having difficulties forgiving somebody that's ever done you wrong, Remember that at one point, they were an innocent child. They were an innocent baby. They were nothing but the embodiment of love. And they looked at the world through eyes of love, and they were just pure love. And at some point, it was broken. Somewhere, it was betrayed, it was broken, and they've spent the rest of their lives trying the best they can to get back to that feeling of absolute love. And it just makes it a little easier to forgive, right? Because sometimes it can be really hard. But if you just remember that at one point we were all innocent little babies, it makes it a little easier to forgive. Yeah. Wow. What an ending. Sonny, I've absolutely loved our chat today. It's been great. So nice to meet you from the other side of the world. I'm from one guy on one side of the planet to another guy on the other side of the planet. I'm going to lean my head to the left, which way is that way? Yeah. And give you a hug. Heart to heart, hug that man. was just an amazing. Love it. <laughs> Thanks so much for anyone listening who has been triggered by today. Yeah, please reach out to your support network because it is really important that you get help if something's coming up for you today. All the links are going to be in the show notes, but Sonny, thanks so much. Thank you, my friend. Well, that's a wrap for today's episode and I hope you got some value from it. If anything triggered your mental health today, please reach out to your support networks. Also, if you loved what you heard, be sure to subscribe to the show and share it with your mates. For more from Mindful Men, you can check us out on Instagram and YouTube, and I'll throw the links to these pages in the show notes below. But until next time, stay mindful.